Jim Davis, Michael Graham, and Ryan Burge in their recent book, The Great Dechurching, said this. We are currently in the middle of the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. About 15% of American adults living today, around 40 million people, have effectively stopped going to church, and most of this dechurching has happened in the past 25 years. It's really a staggering statistic. The biggest religious movement, think about all of the movements in history, they're claiming that even compared to the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the evangelical revivals, we are in the middle of the biggest religious shift in our nation's history. Sociologists Isabella Castlestrand, Phil Zuckerman, and Ryan Cragen, they write this, in the United States, somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 churches close down every year. Either to be repurposed as apartments, laundries, laser tag arenas, skate parks, or simply to be demolished. Now, I want to just add to this to say that uh, it's true that attending church is by no means an indication that you're right with God. You can attend church every single Sunday of your life and not be right with God. And I also want to acknowledge that there is much more to Christian piety than attending church. But I think we can say from a statistical standpoint that attending church is one of the most visible ways of sort of measuring and, and a good barometer of where the nation's spiritual life is. These are very troubling statistics. The fastest growing religion in the United States is none. Uh, is secularism. It's not straight up atheism, but just God is not important in my life. And this is happening at an incredibly rapid pace. And it doesn't matter which denomination you pick, whether like progressive denominations like the PCUSA or very conservative fundamental denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention, all of them are seeing this cliff of just people dropping out and not wanting really anything to do with church or with God anymore. Now, I'm not here to, uh, to make us feel really down and depressed and say everything's awful and this is just terrible and let's all just go home and like mope. That's not my desire today. But it's to say that we are living in a time where we desperately need to avail ourselves of the power of God. Essentially, I believe the churches in the United States of America have lost their power and their influence. We have lost our spiritual power. We have traded our birthright for a stew of pottage. We have run hard after cultural approval, after political power, and spent more time upholding pointless traditions instead of declaring gospel truth. And the world eventually agrees, essentially agrees with us to say, if you're, if you're simply nothing more than a political action committee, I don't need to come to church for that. If you're simply nothing more than a concert I could go to down the street, I don't need church for that. Or if you don't believe anything different than what the culture believes, why bother? And so if we tell everyone that what we believe doesn't actually matter, they'll eventually agree with us and stop taking us seriously. What's more, the churches have been rocked by scandals, abuse scandals, uh, just integrity, a lack of integrity. What is going on here? I don't know that the answer is simple. There's huge cultural trends that are going on and currents that are beyond the control of, of any just one factor. But I think if nothing else, the situation today should be an urgent call to prayer should be an urgent call for us as Christians to get back to the main things, to get back to our source of power, which is prayer. The only thing that will arrest this trend will be a powerful moving of the Spirit of God, what we might call revival. The solution is not looking to new methods. 
The solution is not some electoral wins or legislative victories. That's like building sandcastles to try to stop an incoming tide. The only thing that stops an incoming tide is a shift in the tide. We need a moving of God's spirit, an infusion of his power into the life of the church, into the life of this church. I'm just talking like out there. I'm not just saying like think of the worst church you can think of. Let's think about this church. We need the God's power to move. Now, it's no mistake that at the end of Ephesians 6, Paul has been talking about spiritual warfare, that he concludes the call to war with a call to prayer. So follow along in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong or be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles, against the strategies of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That is, in the heavenlies, there's the spiritual war that is going on. I'm not talking about political high places, but spiritual high places, Again, the, the spiritual realm we can't see. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, or in all these things, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. If you've been here in recent weeks, we have walked through the armor of God, what it means to stand in the spiritual battle. But notice verse 18 is, uh, is not beginning a new sentence, it's continuing on the same sentence. It's saying, okay, you're, you need to stand in the battle, and part of that standing is going to be praying. We need to be victorious in standing against temptation and standing against the attacks of Satan. How do we do that? Praying always with all prayer and supplication. If we are going to be victorious, if we are going to have influence, if we're going to regain spiritual power, it is not going to happen apart from prayer. So what are the characteristics of victorious prayer? What are the characteristics of this prayer that we must develop in our lives if we are to stand on the evil day? Well, the first characteristic is what I'm going to call dependent prayer. If you want to follow along, there's an outline there in your bulletin. Dependent prayer. Now, where are we getting this from? Now, verse 18 begins with that word praying. It's participle. It's connecting to what happened earlier in the passage. Paul's given us this rousing call to war, but you'll notice there's no description of the ensuing fight. He's commanded us to be strengthened, but he's not given us a guide as to how. We've been commanded to stand, but he doesn't say, now do these six things and you will therefore stand spiritually. He says, put on God's armor, and he has all of these pieces of armor that speak to a spiritual reality. But he doesn't say, well, here's how you strap on the the breastplate of righteousness. We're commanded to withstand Satan's attacks, but we're not given a practical process on how to do that. Did you notice just sort of how devoid this passage is of do these steps? How do we do all the things that he's commanded us to do? How do we fulfill the, the main command in this paragraph is verse 14. Stand therefore. How? How? Praying always. It's grammatically connected to say the way that you stand is praying. The way you put the armor on is praying. We sing that hymn, Stand Up for Jesus, each piece put on with prayer. The way that we put on the armor of God is we pray it on. 
Prayer applies the armor of God. So this is more than just a, a, a nice grammatical point to say, oh, look, it's modifying this. It's to say the only way that we can put on the armor of God is by praying on the armor of God. Prayer is the means by which we tap into God's power. Prayer is the means by which we take our stand. Prayer is the means by which we st- strap on our armor. Prayer is the means by which we take up the shield of faith in one hand, put the helmet of salvation on our head, and take the sword in the other. We pray the armor on. You see, you can understand what all of the armor means, understand all the theology, and talk to me about the imputed righteousness of Jesus and the truthfulness of Scripture. And all of that is important. Having a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches, having right doctrine is important, but listen, it is not enough. Having a holy life is important, but it's not enough. Having, having good standards in your life is important, but it's not enough. What is desperately needed is God's power, right? It is a relationship with God, fellowship with God. You see, having the armor of God, it's like the, all of the resources we have. Remember when we started the sermon series back in January, we said we've got the riches of Christ, and it's like getting gift cards for Christmas. If you don't use them, they don't benefit you. You can have all of this armor that God has provided for you, but if we do not pray the armor on, it does us no good. It does us no good. Unused armor is like an unloaded gun. It's like an alarm system that you forget to set. It's like the gift card that you do not spend. You see, prayer is what activates God's power. Think of just the flow of the book. Just look back with me in Ephesians 1. Verses 3 to 14, Paul lists out all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, verse 3. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And then he lists them out. So how do we take those blessings and make them realities in our lives? Well, look at what he says in verse 15 of Ephesians 1. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being opened or being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He's saying, here's all your riches, and then you pray, and it brings them as a reality into your life. He does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 3. He goes on to talk about the the mystery that's been made known uh, through his preaching. Ephesians 3 verse 14, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the depth and length and breadth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. How do we put on the armor? We pray it on. How do we activate all the, the power of God in our lives? We pray. We tap into it through prayer. It's like hitting the light switch. It's like putting the plug into the wall. Now, the reason why this is so essential, as we just read, we're fighting a very, very powerful enemy. We do not have the strength to fight against Satan. Only God has the strength to do that. So prayer becomes an essential part of our spiritual warfare. To be a Christian is to be attacked by Satan. To be a Christian is to be assaulted by temptation. To be a Christian is to be stabbed with suffering. And the Bible tells us that without Jesus, we are pathetically and helplessly weak. Pathetically and helplessly weak. So it follows that only divine power can neutralize 
a spiritual enemy. You see, without prayer, we're like unarmed soldiers charging across no man's land at a, at a, at a machine gun nest. Without prayer, we're like a child attacking a forest fire with a squirt gun. So here's my question. How is your prayer life? Do you live and pray as if prayer is essential, as if you are utterly and completely dependent on God? Or is prayer something that you can sort of tack on when, when it's really convenient for you, when, you know, if I've got some time, I'll make sure I pray. Uh, or, or if something gets really bad happens, I'll make sure I can just sort of send a quick prayer up to God. Or is prayer essential in your life? It's a, it's a question. It's not enough do you think it is or hypothetically. Listen, what we actually do shows what our priorities actually are. You can say, oh, yeah, prayer is important. Okay, how much time do you pray? I think it was Robert Murray McShane who says, a, uh, what a person is on his knees is what that person, who that person really is. But the prayer Paul describes is not only dependent, but it is this varied, diverse kind of prayer. Look back in Ephesians 6, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication. The, the, the way that this sort of the force of this is with every kind of prayer and supplication. There's not just a one-size-fits-all, like this one prayer you pray that sort of magically makes everything work for you. But prayer is diverse. Prayer is varied. Paul is calling us to all prayer, all kinds of prayer. So there's public prayer. We had public prayer this morning, a prayer of adoration, a prayer of confession. We had a, a, a prayer of supplication before we take the Lord's Supper. We're going to have some prayers of thanksgiving. There's different kinds of prayer. There's public prayer. There's private prayer. Both are important. There's prayers of gratitude, prayers of pleading. You read the Psalms, there are prayers of lament. They're like, God, this hurts. This is hard. I'm just going to pour my complaint out to you and run to you in trust. There's prayers that we pray verbally. There's prayers we pray silently. There's regular prayer that we have on a daily basis. Then there's a spontaneous prayer that you just send up when, when, when the need comes. Why is prayer so diverse? Because prayer is very simply communion with God. Prayer is about a relationship. Prayer is not a formula. Prayer is fellowship. And so prayer is going to be as diverse and varied as our lives, right? Prayer is not just a thing that you do, but it is a real fellowship with God. As Brian read, prayer says, Our Father who art in heaven, not just as words that you say in a sort of empty fashion, but as a real relationship, you're talking to your father. You're talking to your heavenly father. The, 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 the book of Romans says the spirit inside us cries out, Abba, Father. It is a relationship. One of my favorite quotes comes from Francois Fenelon. And he says this, Tell God all that is in your heart. As one unloads one's heart, its pleasures and its pain to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles, that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys, that he may sober them. Tell him your longings, that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes, that he may help you to conquer them. Tell him of your temptations, that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart, that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good. Lay bare your depraved taste for evil. Lay bare your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insecure, how pride disguises you to yourself and others. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses, needs, and troubles, there will be no lack of what to say. You'll never exhaust the subject. It is continually being renewed. People who have no secrets from each other never lack for subjects of conversation. 
They do not weigh their words, for there is nothing to be held back. Neither do they seek for something to say. They talk out of the abundance of the heart without consideration just what they think. Blessed are they who attain unto familiar, unreserved fellowship with God. That's prayer. That's prayer, a real relationship with prayer. If you want to see examples of this, you simply read the Bible to see all kinds of prayers being modeled. So 2 Timothy 1, or 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 says, I would therefore that prayers, intercessions, givings of thanks be made for, for all men. There's different kinds of prayer. There's just communion with God. There's intercessions when you're praying for other people. There's supplication. We have that word right here in our text, which is coming to God with our need. Coming to God in our neediness and, and offering that up to him. There's thanksgiving. If you want to see just the array of the tapestry of what prayer can be, read the book of Psalms and pray the book of Psalms. Take the prayers that are there and put them into your own words. So you're going through a time where you are struggling with oppression and mistreatment, there are Psalms to show you how to go to God about that. When you're battling guilt and shame, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, take it to God. When your heart is just overflowing with joy and you don't know what the words are to take to God, there are psalms of praise for that. There is a psalm for every occasion, for every season. Even the book of Ephesians models different kinds of prayer, right? Paul lays out, blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, a prayer called the the barakah, the, the blessing, the praise. He shows us intercession, praying for the saints. Doxology now unto him who is able to do exceeding above all that we can ask or think. To him be glory in the church forever. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Our prayers, our prayer lives should be as rich and vibrant as our lives really are, as we honestly unburden our souls to God. So it feels formal and flat, if it feels cold and stilted, Start being honest with God, and let me suggest that you start praying the scriptures to breathe life into your prayer life. Now, this other term that's mentioned in Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication. This word is a sort of, of the broad category of prayer. Here's a subcategory, supplication, need being expressed to God. And God, as we read earlier, already knows what things we have need of before we ask him. We pray for our daily bread. We pray for him to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray for deliverance. And sometimes the things that we think we need are not the same things as we actually need. And so we go to God saying, God, would you help me to see what I really need and to pray for that? But let me say this. Prayer that will be occasioned by life circumstances and prayer that is informed by Scripture's promises will never lack freshness. That kind of prayer will never lack vitality or authenticity. It's coming from what my life is really like and the promises that God has really made. So tell God. All that is in your heart. Even as you, with an open Bible, hear what is in his heart. Victorious prayer, the kind of prayer that changes history and changes things, is dependent. It's this very diverse kind of prayer. But it's regular. The, 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 next, the next word in our text, praying always, at all times, on all occasions, now, this doesn't mean that all of life we just go home and we just sit around all day saying, and we, we, we never go to work or pay our bills or you know, do something with your family because I'm always just praying. This is not saying sort of unbroken, constant prayer. God's not calling us to, to turn into monks or to just become angels who constantly do nothing more than, uh, than pray. Rather, this means on, on a regular, ongoing kind of a basis. It's prayer that is regular. Prayer that is not just once in a while when you feel like it, but prayer that's a regular discipline. It's not merely praying when you get into a pinch. 
It's not merely praying when you need or you want something from God, but it is praying as a matter of relationship. It's like getting into shape. Um, now, I'm not in great shape. You might say well, round is a shape. But the, you know, those of you who do get into shape, you're, you're getting up early, you're going to the gym, you're, you're doing horrible things like getting onto a treadmill. Um, I was texting a pastor friend the other day, and he like, did a voice text back. He's like, sorry, I'm out of breath. I'm on the treadmill right now. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? So getting into shape takes, takes discipline. And getting into shape spiritually takes discipline. And learning to pray at all times takes discipline. It doesn't happen without intentionality. Nobody just sort of like going through their daily lives, one day woke up in the morning totally ripped and having a six-pack. Like, that takes working out. And nobody just sort of wandering through the Christian life suddenly got a vibrant prayer life. It takes intentional effort. D.A. Carson observes well when he says, one of the reasons we don't pray is we simply do not plan to pray. If you don't plan it, it won't happen. Other things will be more pressing. There will always be something more urgent. There will always be something that needs to be done around the house or an extra project at work or another, another episode of the season to watch on TV. Unless you plan to pray, you probably won't pray. So plan to pray. Put it on the calendar. Put it on the to-do list. Set aside time every day. Here's one of the best ways to make sure that it happens. If you normally have to get up at 6 in the morning to go to work, get up at 5.30. You just got yourself... 30 minutes of, of time that wouldn't have been used for anything else. So getting up at 5.30 sounds horrible because I'm up till 11. Maybe pull the plug on the TV, right? Pull the plug on the TV, go to sleep instead of watching stuff until super late, uh, if, you can, if you can make that happen. Now, there's no rule that says it has to be in the morning. It might be you get to work sort of 20 minutes early, and you have the ability to sit in the parking lot with no noise, and that's your time to pray. Or maybe you finish early and you come home before the kids get off, get out of daycare or get, out, get home from school. That you're like, I've got some quiet time to pray. The point is set aside time that you can make it happen every day. As Brian read earlier, we should go into our prayer closets. Now, that doesn't mean literally go into a closet. But sort of metaphorically is to find a place that is silent where you can get alone with God. One of the best ways to close the door in the prayer closet is that little button on the side of your phone called the off switch. Turn the thing off and get alone with God. Daniel modeled for us in Daniel chapter 6 regular prayer. He prayed three times a day. There was a rhythm to it. Luke 5.16 pictures our Lord, who is sinless, who is God in the flesh, regularly withdrawing into the the deserts to pray. And the way way that, that is structured is to say, this was his habit. He didn't just do it at that one time. But throughout his ministry, he's always going off into the desert to pray and commune with his father. We even see him having an all-night prayer session in Luke chapter 6. If we're going to have regular prayer, we need to learn how to interrupt the noise of our lives. We need to learn how to interrupt the noise of our lives with the intrusive power of silence before God. We don't have much silence. If it's not audible noise, it's sort of digital noise in our lives. That might look like an early morning on the back porch, or what I like to do, go for a walk through my neighborhood. Uh, people in my neighborhood probably think that I'm a weirdo. I'm walking around like five in the morning with a cup of coffee. Like, um, if I don't if I don't show up, someone thought I was a criminal, and I'm I'm off in a ditch somewhere. Um, it might look like getting to, to work early or before you go to bed. Find a time when you can simply be present in God's presence and shut everything else out. Now our text goes on praying always, verse 18, in the Spirit. It's not enough to just go through the motions of praying. 
There's plenty of people who go through the motions of praying who are not actually communing with God. Prayer must be empowered and infused with the Spirit of God for it to actually be prayer. I've sat in the airport before and sort of been humbled by the fact that I see a, see a Muslim over by the gate with their prayer rug, sticking sort of diligently to their routine of praying towards Mecca. But then I realized there's no relationship there. It's just religious ritual. There's no prayer being offered. It's just prayer, so to speak, to placate God and to check off a list. That's not prayer. Prayer becomes prayer not when you simply close your eyes and speak in hushed tones. Prayer doesn't magically become prayer because you utter the magical words in Jesus' name. That's not like a special formula that sort of just turns your thoughts. Now they, boom, suddenly became prayer. Prayer is when you enter into the presence of God and commune with him. So what, I, what do I think this means to be praying in the Spirit? Some say it's sort of you're in the Spirit in this woo-woo kind of sense. I think it's a little, little simpler than that. I think Paul actually told us in Ephesians chapter 2. Look back in verse 18. For through him, that is Jesus, we both have access by one Spirit under the Father. What he is saying is that prayer is a Trinitarian action. We're praying to God as our Father because of the finished work of Jesus dying on the cross and kicking open the doorway of heaven for all to enter. And we have the Spirit of God taking us by the hand, so to speak, leading us into the presence of God. So to pray in the Spirit is to pray with this conscious awareness that I am entering into the presence of a holy God. It might be a great habit for you before you pray, instead of just being like, and we're going to pray now to your Heavenly Father, and off we go. To stop to take a couple of deep breaths, and to truly realize I am about to enter into the presence of the creator of the universe. I'm about to speak to the God who spoke the world into existence. I'm about to commune with this God who holds all things by the right hand of his power. I am about to have a conversation with a God who is so infinitely and utterly holy that even the purest angels veil their faces lest they look upon him. Not just rushing it. Fools rush in where angels fear to dread, tread. Maybe pausing. The Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians is the one who ushers us into the throne room of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals to us all the riches of his glory to us. The Holy Spirit is the one who fills us with all the fullness of God. We cannot have a relationship with the Father apart from the Spirit's indwelling, empowering presence. In fact, it's the Spirit, according to Romans 8, who in our hearts is crying out, Abba, Father. If there's a desire and a longing in your heart for God as your Father, that did not come from your sinful fallen flesh. That came from the Spirit of God. Apart from the Spirit, we would never pray faith-filled, God-centered, devoted prayers of a son to a father. We would never pray as a saint to God Almighty. Apart from the Spirit, we could never desire to linger in the presence of the invisible God to revel in his blazing glory. Now, there's something else here over in the book of Romans, chapter 8. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? I don't think we're talking about sort of a mystical thing that I've got to conjure up to be ushered into the presence of God by the Spirit of God. Romans 8 adds another dimension to this, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Okay, our weaknesses, our frailties of going through this life. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Let's be honest, we don't know what's best for us. We don't. We don't know what, what God's best is for us. We don't know what we should pray for. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us 
with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, earlier, Paul talked about the fact that we living in this fallen world are just groaning. We feel the weight. Some of you even literally feel that as your, as your body wears down. You're just like, man, getting out of bed in the morning, it hurts. Trying to read is hard now. Just the, the sense of we're living in a world that's fallen, or you turn on the news and you're just like, France is on fire. Like, we're living in this broken world that's fallen. Things are not the way they should be. Hurricane season rolls around, and hurricanes come in and smash into impoverished islands in the, in the, in the Caribbean, taking away what little people have. You're like, this is not the way it's meant to be, and you, you groan. And the Spirit of God takes those groanings of saying, this is not the way it should be, and turns those into longings and prayers for coming glory. Takes the groanings, the, the things we carry, intercedes for us, enters into our prayers with us, and he that searches the hearts knows what the, knoweth, what, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I love that. I don't know what I'm supposed to pray for for myself many times. Praise God that the Spirit of God is interceding with me, and the Son of God is before the throne of the Father, likewise interceding for me. If God be for me, who can be against me? To pray in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit means we've got to get past the vain repetitions. Stringing together the churchy-sounding phrases that you've sort of heard your whole life of praying for stuff that we don't even know what it means. Praying real language from real circumstances to a real God. This means so much more than just the formal stilted language of, I'm going to pray now and it's going to be... Now listen, there's times where we have people lead in prayer and I ask the people who lead in prayer to think about what they're going to pray because it's a time where we're also being instructed. But in our prayer lives, it has to come from our hearts. We never read prayers, we pray prayers, even if they're written down ahead of time. It means getting real with God. It means deliberately slowing down. Like when I lead our church in prayer, I deliberately am like, I'm going to pray slowly lest my mouth get ahead of my heart. Right? Lest we just kind of, oh yeah, we're praying now, and then go into the sort of prayer cadence. Talk to God like you would talk to someone else, but slow down so you know your heart is engaged. And you are thinking what you are praying. You are believing what you are praying. So do you pray? Not just do you pray, but do you pray with a conscious sense that you are really communing with God? Is there a sense that you know that the, the Holy Spirit of God is empowering and stirring you up to approach God in this incredible relationship that has been purchased by the blood of Christ? This prayer that we have, it's got to be regular. But fourth, we find that prayer must be persistent. Back to Ephesians 6. We're just walking through this sort of word by word, praying always. So there's the regular part. With all prayer, there's the varied part in supplication. There's the dependence part in the spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication. Okay, that's kind of a mouthful, watching thereunto. The idea here of watching is not just I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch, but it's the idea of I'm going to stay alert. It's kind of a a military word. You've got watch. You are on sentry duty. It's your job to stay awake to make sure the enemy don't come. Stay alert, Paul is saying, to this end, thereunto. For the purpose of praying, if you're really going to pray, it's going to take some persistence. It's going to take some perseverance to simply stay alert. That word translated watching is to be vigilant in awareness, of threatening peril, to be alert, to be alertly concerned about, to look after, to care for. Like there's, there are dangers that would come and would take away our prayer life. 
And you begin to see them in your life. You're like, man, I used to pray more, and then these things started to come in and encroach on it. Be on guard against anything that would take you away from seeking the face of God. So many of the things that would pull us away from prayer are not bad things. They're good things that have become ultimate things. Busyness. Work, entertainment, activities, travel, serving people, caring for your family. These are all good things. They're not bad things. But when they begin to take us away from prayer, they become a problem. It's so easy to to focus on what we can see as opposed to commune with the God that we cannot see. Christian prayer requires a lot of faith because we literally can't see him. It's almost easier when there's idolatry, when you're like, there's this little thing that you go and pray to, you can sort of see and imagine, but the God we see cannot be imagined. He is invisible and he is infinite. Now this persistence idea is watching thereunto, verse 18, with all perseverance. By the way, do you notice the repetition of the word all? It basically outlines this verse for us. All prayer in uh, the first part of the verse is that varied prayer. Always that constant prayer. All perseverance, there's the persistence. And then the all saints, there's the intercession. So stay at it. Don't just stay alert, but stay at it. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now the word used here for perseverance is used nowhere else in the entire Bible. Paul is pulling out a word that no other writer, no other place in Scripture uses. We're talking about a dogged persistence in prayer. Similar language shows up in Luke's gospel, and when Jesus uses it, it's in the context of the end is going to come, the end times are going to come, and so keep pressing on in prayer. In other words, persistent prayer is oriented to the world to come. The, prayer that, the praying that is persistent is the praying that believes that one day Jesus will return, that one day we will enter into glory, that one day it will be worth it all. It's the kind of prayer that has the values of eternity, kind of prayer that recognizes answers may not come right away, but they will surely come. Now, this isn't saying that you need to pray for a really long time, like pray for three hours a day, but it's to pray over long stretches of time. Some of you have loved ones that you have been praying for for years and years to be converted to Christ. Don't stop praying. Some of you are praying for a revival in our church and in our land. Don't stop praying. You're praying for deliverance from something. Don't stop praying. We have this scene that unfolds in Revelation 6 that's really quite stunning. One of the seals are open and John sees the martyrs under the altar. And they're praying, how long, O Lord, holy and true. Those are prayers that were offered on earth that did not have an answer during their lifetime. But he says, just a little while, and God will hear those prayers. In other words... Every faith-filled prayer that is prayed in submission to Christ does get answered. If not now, then one day in eternity. You're saying, I'm praying for justice, that some injustice, some abuse, some oppression has happened, and they got away with it. One day that prayer for justice will be answered. One day your prayer for healing and deliverance will be answered. Maybe not in the way that you think it is. In other words, if you want to say, why does God not answer prayer? You need to expand your horizons and look 10 million years into the future. And you see that in the end, God does indeed answer every prayer infinitely more than you could imagine. So keep at it. You only persist if you can see the finish line. You only keep running if you know that eventually you're going to get to the end of the race. You only keep on hiking if you can see the top of the mountain. And you only keep on swimming if you can see the shore ahead of you. 
Beloved, we can see the mountaintop. We can see the shore ahead of us. We can see the finish line because Revelation lays it out for us. So persist. But a fifth attribute here of this kind of prayer is it is intercessory. Paul goes on, this next all he has, the end of verse 18, for all the saints. One of Paul's concerns in Ephesians is to show the unity between Jew and Gentile. You can think how easy it would be for the Jewish Christians to pray for their Jewish concerns and for their Jewish friends and kind of overlook the Gentiles and the Gentiles to kind of do the same. Paul is saying practically one of the ways you live out the reality of the unity that the cross has bought for us is to pray outside your natural concerns. It's easy to pray for people who look like you, who have the same concerns as you, who are sort of in your age group, your demographic, your ethnic identity. Paul's saying pray for all the saints. Pray for people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Now think of the military imagery. No war is won by one soldier. Right? I know like all the video games, like the one guy, you go and you sort of win World War II. But like, no, it's an army. Armies win wars, not individual soldiers. In a sense, you're sort of looking up and down the battle line facing the, the, the foes of hell, and you're praying, God, I'm praying that the lion all the way down holds. I'm praying that the flanks hold. I'm praying for my brothers and sisters in Christ who may not go to a church just like mine to be faithful. I'm praying for believers outside of the country in which I live to, be, to hold firm. I think praying like this would do so much to take away the partisanship that exists in the church today where it's like, well, we're independent Baptists and we're the only ones who get it right. Like, okay, I'm independent Baptist by conviction, but God's work in the world is so much bigger than Cloverleaf Baptist Church. God's work in the world is so much bigger than churches who look just like ours and worship just like ours. We need the success of all of Christ's church. And when people bearing the name of Jesus do things that bring shame on the name of Jesus, that reflects back on us as well. That's why Paul can say in, I think it's 1 Corinthians, if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. The, the, the phrase we've heard, no one is an island. There's a sense, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What happens in one part of the body of Christ affects the entire body of Christ. So we should pray for all saints, not just for our own families, but for our church family, and not just for our church family, but for Christ's church as a whole in the world, and not just for Christians in our land, but for Christians in other lands as well. Not just the parochial concerns of right here, Mobile, Alabama, but the concerns of Nairobi, Kenya, and Paris, France, and Kathmandu, Nepal, and Beijing, China, like concerns about the globe because Christ's church is a global church. This corporate dimension reminds us that spiritual warfare is not... An individualistic endeavor, it's a team sport. It involves a whole unit, the church local and the church universal. Other believers around the world are facing temptation. Other believers within this congregation are struggling with sin. Others are walking through suffering. Others are wrestling with doubt, and we ought to be praying for each other. Now listen, we live in an age where everyone is very private, saying that's none of your business about how I'm doing. What we, what's, what's sort of the stock answer? How are you doing? We either have fine or busy. Right, those are our go-to answers. What if when a brother or sister in Christ asked you how you're doing, you really told them how you're doing so they could pray for you? And what if when they told you, you prayed for them? What if? What if we made it our business to know what's going on in each other's lives? What if we made it our business to pray for each other and to enter into the fight with and for our brothers and sisters? 
You see, all of us are soldiers in the army. The New Testament knows nothing of a lone wolf saint or a commando Christian. You see, prayer, pray for all the saints. Prayer is the divine superglue that holds all the different elements of the church together. And by the way, I would say intercessory prayer is a death blow to selfish introspection. We live in a therapeutic age where everybody's worried about like their mental health and how they feel and their emotions. And I'm not saying those things are unimportant or unreal. But I really do wonder if we put the mirror down and stopped gazing at our own navels and started being concerned about the needs of others, what that would do for our joy. The very act of saying, instead of being concerned about how I'm feeling, I'm going to pray for other people, just took the focus off of me and put it on others. And the old acronym, Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. So what, are we, what should we be praying for for all saints? Like just, God, would you bless them in a, in, a, in a special and unique way? Amen. What should we be praying? Again, I would say the kinds of things that we should pray for are the things that the Bible shows us that we should pray for. Here's what I would challenge you to do. Sit down sometime and start in the book of Romans and read through the letters of Paul. In just about every letter, Paul will lay out a prayer that he prays for Christians living in the new covenant. The kinds of things that he prays for are so different than the things we tend to pray for. He's never praying, God, I pray for the saints at Thessalonica that you would just help them to be really prosperous and to get pay raises at their jobs. So he's praying, God, would you help them to walk worthy of your kingdom? The letter to the Ephesians, he's not just praying, God, would you help them to have a good time there in the city of Ephesus and really enjoy their vacation on on the seaside along the Aegean. No, he's saying, God, would you open their eyes to see the glories of the riches that you have for them? The kinds of things Paul is praying for are heavenly priorities. So what if we prayed for each other's holiness? What if you prayed for other people to really know God? What if you prayed for each other's witness? In fact, that brings us into this final element of the kind of prayer Paul calls us to. It's evangelistic. Sort of moving out from praying for yourself, praying always that you'd put the armor on, that you sort of pray, God, would you put on the breastplate today? Would God, would you help me take the helmet of salvation? Start with yourself, then praying for all the saints. And then verses 19 and 20, Paul's concern, and it sounds like he's saying pray for me, but it's really praying for the gospel to advance. Pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that when I open my mouth, I may do so boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in a chain, that therein I may... Speak boldly, speak clearly, as I ought to speak. He's saying, church at Ephesus, would you pray for me to clearly and courageously declare the gospel? This is praying evangelistically for the gospel to go forward. So Paul's modeling for us the kinds of things that we should be praying for. One of the things we ought to be praying for is for gospel opportunities. For chances to speak the good news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. How did Paul so powerfully reach the ancient world? Well, he's an apostle, yes. But it's obvious when you read Romans 15, 30 to 32, and 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2, and 2 Corinthians 1, 11, and Colossians 4, 3 to 4, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 25, and the text in front of us, that Paul is constantly praying and asking for other people to pray for the gospel to advance. The gospel advances sort of on the, the crest of a wave of prayer pushing it into the shore, pushing it inland. Could it be that we do not see revival because we're not praying for revival? 
Could it be that we're not seeing sinners converted because we're not praying for sinners to be converted? Could it be that you haven't had an opportunity to share the gospel in years because you're not actively praying for opportunities to share the gospel? Could it be that our biggest failure is our failure to pray? Now, Paul is asking for two requests here. If you look at it, he says, pray for me that, verse 19, and he sort of unpacks that. And then again in verse 20, I'm an ambassador in bonds, that, therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is asking for two things. Both of them are communicated with that word boldly. That word that's rendered boldly has two nuances. One of them is clarity. He's like, that I would just speak without you know, sort of any inhibition and it would just be crystal clear. And the other nuance of the word is the idea of courage. So I think in verse 19, he's really emphasizing the idea of clarity. He's got the idea, the mystery of the gospel. People don't know what it needs to be made known to them. He's using the, that I may open my mouth, that I may make it known. He's saying, pray that I would be very, very clear about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus. Pray that God would help us get the gospel right. Pray that God would help us to lay out the holiness of God. Pray that God would help us lay lay out the reality of sin and the sinfulness of sin and the necessity of a new birth. Pray that God would help us show the utter hopelessness of man's condition without Jesus. Pray that God would help us lay out the sinlessness of Jesus and the purpose of his death as our substitute and the glorious fact of his resurrection. Pray that God would help us to clearly call sinners to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Now, making the message clear is not about just rattling off a sales pitch. Paul did not give the gospel the same way on Mars Hill as he did before the Sanhedrin. He knew his audience, and he adapted the message depending on the audience. The big question for us today is we live in a secular age. How do we take the timeless truth of God's word and present it in a way that is clear to a secular age? Listen, we can't give the same gospel presentation we gave in 1950 when people don't even know who God is. We've got to back the truck up. We've got to expand the horizons. We've got to answer the questions that are being asked. But verse 20, I think the nuance here is courage. He says, I'm an ambassador in bonds. Paul has literally got a chain on his wrist tied to a member of the Praetorian Guard as he is under house arrest in Rome, going on trial because of his testimony. As he's writing, so that therein I might speak boldly. You know, when you've got a, a handcuffs on your, on your wrist because of your testimony, the temptation may be to say, I'm going to pull back a little bit. I'm going to be, I don't want to be quite as bold. But Paul said, pray that I would have courage. As I ought to speak, the gospel needs to be spoken in a way. Now, this is not just a prayer for Paul or for for me. This is a prayer for all of us. The witness of the church is a corporate witness, not just an individual one. And I think muddled speech, unclear gospel presentations come from fearful hearts. When we have the fear of man, we'll pull the punches. I don't want to say that word repent. That might offend people. I don't want to mention sin because people may think that I'm really judgmental if I say that. Muddled speech comes from fearful hearts. So pray that Christ would give us a courageous heart to speak as we ought to. So we need both, as Paul mentions here in verse 19 and verse 20. We need clarity, get the gospel right, and we need courage. It does the world no good if we get the gospel, if we get the gospel right and then don't tell anyone. We can have a great gospel presentation and understand that it involves repentance and faith and the substitutionary. But if nobody ever hears that message, they're on their way to an eternity without Christ. 
It does no good to be a bold witness at the same time if you get the gospel wrong. So some people are really bold in telling people, and they, they get the gospel wrong, and it sounds like it's works, or it's just sort of watered down to where you just kind of pray a little prayer. Like, we've got to get the gospel right, and we've got to get the gospel out. We've got to be clear, and we've got to be courageous, and we can only do so through prayer. So pray evangelistically. Maybe right now on your notes, list out the name of just at least one person. All of us know at least one person that we're like, I don't think they're right with God, that they are on their way to heaven. Write their name down. And when we close in prayer, pray for them. And listen, God does not strike people with lightning and magically save them. You know how God saves sinners? People coming and telling other people the gospel. We need to pray. We desperately need dependent prayer. We desperately need this genuine, diverse prayer that reflects really what's going on in our lives. We desperately need this regular prayer on a a daily basis in our lives. And we desperately need this persistent, intercessory, evangelistic prayer. We need prayer in our public gatherings. We need prayer in our fellowship groups. We need prayer in our individual lives. So will you commit to praying? And I would even suggest that you write down on your notes, I am committing before God to pray every day at this time for this long. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it happen. And maybe you're going to tell your, your husband or your wife or a friend in the church to say, I need you to hold me accountable this week to see that I actually do that. So this actually happens. So will you commit to praying? Will you start praying? Will you keep praying? Church, will you pray? Oh God, we need your help.